Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the Musical Times, volume 62, number 145, from November 1st, 1921, and it's titled, The Jubilee of the Magic Flute. The Jubilee of the Magic Flute. 130 years have elapsed since the first performance of Die Zauberflote, and still Mozart's masterwork stands in splendid isolation, solitary and misunderstood. Its glorious melodies raise the enthusiasm of listeners. Its golden humor rejoices the hearts of men. But who can say, I have grasped the hidden meaning of the work? While acknowledging the great value of the music, men have ever declared the text a piece of nonsense, and this opinion has become tradition. Is it possible that the great Mozart could have written such divine music to a silly fairy tale? Let us briefly examine the history of the libretto, the full meaning of the masterworks of the German classics, of Lessing, Weiland, Herder, Goethe, cannot be grasped without the admission of the influence of Freemasonry, with its purely human character embracing the civilized world during the second half of the 18th century. Yet nowhere are the Masonic ideas expressed more powerfully and more artistically than in the Magic Flute. Mozart was a member of the oldest lodge, Zur Gekronter Hoffnung at Vienna. No egotism had caused him to become a Freemason, but real humanity, the wish to help others. He composed Masonic songs, choruses, and cantatas, which are, as it were, preparatory studies to the magic flute. When Scheikenetter, 1751-1812, an actor, theatrical manager, and a friend of Mozart, first broached the subject of the magic flute, he did not mean to suggest a Masonic opera, the subject was taken from Weiland's Dishinistan, a collection of fairy tales, and the first act was written when he heard that two other operas on the same subject, with music by Wenzel Muller, were about to be produced. This caused him to alter the character of the story altogether. It has been suggested that Carl Ludwig Geisick, a member of Schikaneder's theatrical company, who had written several successful plays, was the author of The Magic Flute. Geisick was a member of Mozart's Masonic Lodge, and he had actually worked at the plot of the Magic Flute from a Mason's point of view. But it has been definitely proved by Komorzynski that he did not possess the poetic gift to write the text to Mozart's opera. Doubtless he had a share in the work, since it can now be known that Schikaneder himself was a Freemason and a member of the Lodge, Die Wauschen zu den drei Schlüssen, at Regensburg. Up till 1790, Freemasonry was in a flourishing condition. All the leading men in literature, art, and politics, including the Emperor Joseph II, were Freemasons. After the year 1790, the Roman Catholic Church began furiously to attack the order. Under Leopold II, 1790-92, the patronage of the nobility was withdrawn, and Freemasonry seemed to require an apology. It will never be ascertained whether Schikaneder himself evolved the happy thought of placing his subject under the waning star of the Masonic Order, or whether other factors were instrumental in this respect. 
Doubtless, Mozart himself, an enthusiastic Freemason, caused Schikaneder to give the fairy tale of Wieland a deeper significance. He watched over the plot and its symbolism, giving Masonic ideas a pronounced expression and leaving the technical part to the experienced Schikaneder. Thus, the text to the Zauberflot is a modeled work. Schikaneder did not take the trouble of revising the first act according to the suggestions of Mozart and Geisick. Hence, there is a break in the characterization of the persons who in the second part are developed in quite a different manner from what had been planned in the fairy tale like first act. Yet there is no cause to criticize too severely. The knowledge of the damage is its own correction. From Mozart has, with his sublimely uniform artistic music, supplied that which was wanted. The music becomes a mean of inspiring the highest ideals of man. It lays bare the deeper meaning of the somewhat superficial lines. It takes away the commonplace character and reveals the harmony of truth and love. Die Zauberflot was first performed on September 30, 1791, in the theater Auf der Wieden, without great success, and the authors were much disappointed. The audience did not understand the significance of the work. A Berlin report of October 9th says, The new machine comedy Die Zauberflot with music by our Kapellmeister Mozart, which was given at great cost and much scenic splendor, did not achieve the desired success because the plot and language of the piece are too bad. Nevertheless, Schikaneder gave the opera again and again. Within 12 months, he could book the 100th performance. After a lapse of four years, the 200th, and the magic flute pursued its triumphant course. Schikaneder had been accused of having treated Mozart shamefully by printing and selling abroad the score of the magic flute. When Mozart died in 1791, the opera was hardly known in Germany. He could not, therefore, have called Schikaneder a rascal, nor accused him of reaping great profit out of the joint work. Probably Schikaneder thought that with Mozart's death, he had no obligation towards the family. Frau Mozart and Niesen, her second husband, naturally made a great hubbub, and the many enemies of Schikaneder are responsible for this fable of his knavery. Although the success of the magic flute was assured, the opera could not save Freemasonry in Austria. The Emperor Francis II, himself an enemy of the order, closed in 1795 all Austrian lodges. Mozart did not live to see the effect of those drastic measures. He had died not knowing that his masterwork was destined to bestow the laurel wreath of the martyr upon Freemasonry. Written by F. Erkman, E-R-C-K-M-A-N-N. The following article is from a journal called Representations, Volume 102, Number 1, Spring of 2008 and is titled, Who's Magic Flute? It is written by Marianne Tettelbaum. According to the chorus at the conclusion of Act 1, Scene 8 of Mozart's opera, a magic flute is a powerful instrument. Whoever possesses it is endowed, as the chorus sings, with an allmachtig, or all-powerful, capacity to take action, increase human happiness, and transform the passions of the human soul. A magic flute, therefore, is not only a powerful instrument, but also an instrument of power. Whoever plays or wields it can determine the course of events in the opera and the destiny of its characters. Whoever has the flute, in other words, is the source of the power that governs the opera. How we interpret that power, then, depends on whom we identify as the flute player. The question, whose magic flute, is thus synonymous with the question of whose power is represented on the stage, whose worldview ultimately prevails. For whoever has the flute determines our understanding of what the opera stands for and what it means. The magical power the flute player wields within the opera is also an interpretive power over the opera, 
as interpreters, we inevitably take our cue from the flute player. If the magic flute hinges on the power of a magic flute, then we ought to know whose power, whose flute, we are talking about. But identifying the flute player in this opera is not as straightforward as it might seem. While it is true that Tamino is the character who plays the magic flute, and that he holds it and blows through it, it is unclear whether the effects the flute generates, let alone its notes, actually stem from his agency. In fact, the agency behind the magic flute remains unsettled throughout the opera. Tamino receives the flute from the Queen of the Night, more precisely, from the Queen via the Three Women, as a tool for rescuing her daughter, Pamina. This act of giving the flute is mirrored in the second half of the opera, after forcing Tamino to surrender the flute at the gates of the temp to the Temple of Wisdom, Sarastro gives it back to him via the three boys, as a tool for withstanding the trials he must undergo to be initiated into Sarastro's secret brotherhood. In Act 1, the flute thus seems to be the instrument of the queen, an extension of her magical power. In Act 2, however, it seems to belong to Sarastro, a product of his sacred strength. The double gesture of the giving of the flute reflects the power struggle between the queen and Sarastro for control over Tamino's soul. At the end of the opera, however, we learn from Pamina that the flute belonged originally neither to the queen nor to Sarastro, but in fact to Pamina's father, who carved it from the heart of an ancient oak during a magical hour amidst a thunderstorm. Here, the flute's power seems to be one with the power of nature, materialized in the ancient oak, symbolized by the storm, and formed through the agency of Pamina's father. But even this explanation is superseded at the end of the opera by the possibility that the flute's origin is divine rather than natural. When the final chorus sings praises to the gods Isis and Osiris, we might suspect that they have been responsible all along for the events of the opera, which would suggest that the agency behind the flute is divine. Because it is unclear who has the flute, it is also unclear to whom or to what we as interpreters should turn in determining whose worldview is represented on the stage. There has been, therefore, no scholarly consensus on the issue. Does the opera belong to the Enlightenment and its promise of wisdom, equality, and truth? Or does it belong to a counter-Enlightenment in which these promises go unfulfilled and are even contradicted? Is it, with its fairy tale quality and fascination with mystery and magic, a product of German Romanticism rather than the Enlightenment? Is it a Masonic allegory? Or is it a political drama of the Habsburgs? The perception of who owns the opera, moreover, also has much to do with the way it has been staged. Compare, for instance, the enlightened vision of humanity in Ingmar Bergman's famous cinematic version, in which light triumphs over darkness and the celebration of equality and diversity is underscored by cuts to the multicolored faces of the audience. With the colorful fairy tale Julie Tamner, staged for the 2004-05 season of the Metropolitan Opera in celebration of everything magical, metaphorical, and strange about the opera. Rose Rosengard Sabotnik was the first to broach explicitly this problem of ownership when she titled her 1991 article, Who's Magic Flute? This question, for her, is related to the opera's broad appeal. Since its first performance, it has been acclaimed by members of the highest and lowest social classes. Although she focuses largely on the way the opera belongs to the German Enlightenment, on the way the Enlightenment is the driving force behind it, she insists that the opera no longer belongs solely to the Enlightenment. The magic flute, she concludes, has become ours. Thus, she declares the question of ownership open, it is now our task to test the success of the Magic Flute's message. Sabotnik's question, whose Magic Flute, is far from exhausted, 
it deserves, in fact, more attention than it has received. What follows is an attempt to lay what I see as crucial groundwork for addressing it. Before we can examine the ramifications of the question, whose magic flute, we would do well, I argue, to answer the related and also prior question, whose magic flute? In order to examine what the opera represents, we must understand how that representation is governed by the power of the flute player. The magic flute, after all, is an instrument for conveying meaning as much as it is an instrument for making music. By focusing on the magic flute rather than the magic flute, then I aim to shift the terms of the inquiry from what the opera represents to the question of representation itself, from what the opera means to how it means. The question of representation is especially crucial in understanding the opera's much-debated relationship to the German Enlightenment. Discussions of the magic flute as an Enlightenment drama often hinge on an interpretation of the opera's content, for instance, its treatment of women, the merits of Sarastro's brotherhood, or the fate of Papagino. The question remains, however, whether Enlightenment is something that can be represented on stage in the first place, whether any relationship between the magic flute and the Enlightenment could be captured in conventional representative terms. According to Immanuel Kant in the Critique of Judgment, the maxim of Enlightenment is to think for oneself. The difficulty with this maxim, he explains, is that even though we may try to think for ourselves, we may easily let ourselves be guided by others. For there will never be a shortage of others who promise us with much assurance that they can satisfy our desire for knowledge. Because it involves resisting the influence of others, enlightenment is, as Kant characterizes it, merely negative. It is, in other words, a negative force of resistance, not only to the influence of others, but also to prejudice and especially to superstition. To think for oneself is defined less by the positive content of one thinks than by the negative refusal to think as those who are superstitious, prejudiced, or claim to know all would have us think. Can enlightenment, especially if conceived as a negative principle, be represented at all? If we stage enlightenment, do we not risk turning it into its opposite, an isolated and ossified moment of positivity rather than an ongoing challenge that inheres negatively in all thought? In other words, if we take seriously Kant's definition of enlightenment as merely negative, then it cannot simply appear on stage in this or add that guise. For to represent it at all is to defy its very essence. Its relationship to this opera, indeed, is relationship to any artwork, cannot be reduced to a mere thematic correspondence. According to Jane Brown, the confusion about what the magic flute represents is due to its libretto which she argues is caught between allegorical and mimetic drama, two conflicting modes of representation. Brown describes a shift in the 18th century from allegorical drama, popular since the Middle Ages, in which objects represent divine or supernatural forces and reinforce dominant religious and cosmological views, to mimetic drama, in which objects represent themselves. She singles out two crucial characteristics of 18th century mimetic dramaturgy. First, events are driven by causality of material substance, not by the logic of religious doctrine or the theme. Second, characters are understood in terms of an individual psychology. Meaning comes from within the psyche, not from the structure of the universe ordained by God. In its use of the struggle between the queen and Sarastro to represent darkness versus light, the magic flute seems to be thoroughly allegorical. But in its insistence that Tamino triumphs because of his own inner humanity, and in the way that the acquisition of knowledge is related to what resides in the heart, the opera is mimetic. 
The result, Brown concludes, is uncertainty about what light and dark, male and female, actually signify. There is no difficulty distinguishing dark from light in the opera, but what do they signify? That is, which is black and which white in the moral sense? Which should we believe in? A similar uncertainty surrounds the flute. To which order of representation does it belong? Does it stand for some higher power or principle, such as harmony, humanity, or brotherhood? Or is it simply what the title indicates, a magic object? What kind of music does a magic flute make anyway? In the first section to follow, I examine how, by listening, we gain insight into the identity of the flute player and ultimately into the mode of representation at stake. In the second and third sections, I expand this examination to consider the relationship between the role of the flute player and that of the critic. The Magic Flute If we take the opera's title as an indication of its content, we might listen especially attentively for the music of the Magic Flute. We might think that the first prominent entrance of the flute in the overture presages something magical. Only later do we learn that the Magic Flute does not sound like this. If anything, this sequence of ascending chromatic notes points more to the ascending run of Papagino's panpipes than to anything we hear from the magic flute. That flute plays set pieces, a folksy dance tune, and a lightly orchestrated march. In both cases, it's a solo instrument, not part of an orchestral texture. Explicitly, at least, the magic flute never functions as part of the orchestra. Its music is only ever diegetic. The overture flute, in contrast, is only the solo instrument for six measures, after which it dialogues with the oboes. This flute functions, as it does in the rest of the overture, as a member of the orchestra rather than a quasi-character in its own right. Nothing per se precludes us from hearing this initial flute in the overture as magical, but the difference in status between it and the magic flute suggests that what we hear in the overture is simply an ordinary, that is, non-magical flute. From the beginning of the opera, therefore, we must attune our ear to the different sounding status of what is, effectively, one and the same instrument. Not just the same type of instrument, but the same instrument, presumably with the same player. We first explicitly hear the magic flute at the conclusion of what is potentially, from both a musical and a dramatic standpoint, the most important scene in the opera. Namely, the much-discussed recitative that begins the finale of Act One. This is the famous turning point in the opera, not to mention a remarkable scene musically for the drama of the accompanied recitative and the fact that Mozart abandons traditional formal structure to follow the words. In this scene, we realize, along with Tanmino, that the queen of the night is perhaps not the victim and Sarastro not the villain we initially took them to be. The scene opens with Tamino's arrival at Sarastro's temple in search of Pamina. When the priest who greets Tamino asks what he is looking for in the Temple of Wisdom, Tamino answers, the realm of love and virtue. The priest responds skeptically, the words are of high import, but how do you expect to realize them? You are not guided by love and virtue, for you are inflamed by death and revenge. The exchange between the priest and Tamino is marked by the very questions of ownership, authority, and representation that I discussed in the opening section. Except that here, these questions revolve not around the flute, but around language, specifically around Tamino's use of two words, love and virtue, that are crucial to the theme of the opera. In response to the priest's question, Tamino says he is looking not simply for love and virtue, but for the realm of love and virtue. The significance of realm here extends beyond its ability to rhyme with a word in the previous line, it also indicates that for Tamino, love and virtue are neither abstract concepts nor personal qualities, but realms or spaces. 
He is searching, in other words, not for love and virtue themselves, but for space, the realm, or the domain wherein love and virtue reside, as if they might occupy the inner space of the temple he so desperately wants to enter. His search for love and virtue, therefore, is inherently proprietary, as much in a physical as in an intellectual sense. His response suggests that there is a realm to which love and virtue rightfully belong. The priest's admonition is a double one. Not only, he claims, is Tamino led by death and revenge rather than by love and virtue, but also, he explains, love and virtue are not realms, but words, albeit ones of high import. The priest changes the terms of the discourse, and in doing so, the question of ownership. Love and virtue are not realms one enters, but rather words one uses. The real question of ownership here, according to the priest, is about language, not property. Tamino sings of virtue and love, but as the priest points out, he does not understand them. Tamino, after all, takes the cue musically for his line on love and virtue from the clarinets, which enter before he does, and he continues to double them as if they are determining the contours of his melodic line, and he is merely swept up in their path, unaware of exactly what he is singing. Although the music of the clarinets here is non-diegetic, Tamino supposedly does not hear them, we are nevertheless left with the impression that Tamino is at the mercy of a force beyond his control, a force made audible to us by the clarinets. The passage stands out not only because this is the only time the clarinets play during the recitative, but also because their entrance ushers in a brief return of the opera's home key, E-flat major. There is a potential moment of deja vu here. We have heard this particular combination of instrument, B-flat clarinet, and key, E-flat major, already in Tamino's Dies Bildnis. In this aria, Tamino also seems to be guided at crucial moments by a force made audible in the clarinets. He struggles, in fact, in the first section of the aria to articulate exactly what he is feeling as he admires the portrait of Pamina. I feel it, he sings, but what it is remains unclear. After his first stanza, the clarinets enter with a brief interlude. Tamino picks up their melodic line in the following measures. As his melody echoes that of the clarinets, he realizes that he has no idea what he is feeling. This is something I cannot even name. For the first time, we confront Tamino's inarticulateness, his lack of facility in expressing himself through words. As the aria shifts from tonic to dominant, Tamino wonders <clears throat> if what he is feeling is, in fact, love. Again, the clarinets take the lead and reassure him musically as they ascend. When Tamino joins them on the final 16th note of measure 26, he is convinced, and the music cadences in measure 34 on the dominant. But the extent of his agency in this realization is unclear. Has he come to a greater understanding of himself and his feelings, or has he been swept along by some outside force, just as we have been swept along with the flow of the music? When Tamino sings again of love on the recitative, the clarinets return to support him. The thirds that the clarinet played together in Dice Bildness return here in the first clarinet in a lyrical descending sequence. We might suspect that the music really emanates from a realm of love and virtue, and that we can travel there on the wings of the clarinets, that we can assume with certainty, as Tamino does here and in Dice Bildness, that love alone is guiding us. But we would be mistaken, as is Tamino. When the priest questions his understanding of love, he also questions the certainty of his feeling in Dice Bildness. But Tamino does not comprehend the priest's reproach. He insists on understanding his quest in terms of proprietary ownership. Confused at the priest's initial response, he asks him, Doesn't Sarastro rule in these parts? The priest's positive answer confounds him further. In desperation, he declares, Sarastro resides here. That is enough for me. Tamino 
insists on understanding the discussion in terms of property and ownership, and refuses to enter into the terms of the priest's discourse. The priest, therefore, refuses to let him into the temple. Tomino's failure to understand is reflected in his declamatory style. As the recitative continues, he rushes over his words. The score indicates that he is supposed to sing his lines quickly. His outbursts are punctuated by chords and tremolos in the orchestra. In contrast, the priest speaks slowly and deliberately, accompanied by held notes. True to his initial emphasis on the proper understanding of words, the priest attempts to convince Tomino not to be misled by the Queen of the Night's play with words. Only concern for Panmina brings Tomino around, so that he will eventually listen to the priest's words. For when he asks in Measure 136, when will the darkness disappear, his speech slows to match the tempo and delivery of the priest. At the very least, Tomino comprehends that there is much he does not yet comprehend. He learns that Pamina is alive, but he does not know how to express to the gods the gratitude he feels upon receiving this information. Oh, if only I were able, in honor of you, almighty gods, to show my thanks with every note as it sprang from here, pointing to his heart at that point. And so, at a loss for words to express how he feels, Tamino plays the magic flute. Thus, the first time we hear the magic flute's music, it is as a substitute for Tamino's inexpressible feelings, for something he cannot express in language. But are these Tamino's heartfelt emotions that the music expresses? The flute's quaint, folksy, even formulaic tone is almost too lighthearted, too fluty, perhaps, to reflect the depths of human gratitude Tamino wishes to express. This tune is far removed, for instance, from the impassioned melody of Tamino's love-stricken Dicebildness, but this fluty quality is perhaps precisely the point. It reminds us that we are not listening to Tamino himself, but to an enchanted instrument standing in for what he cannot otherwise express. This is instrumental music in its most complete sense. It seems to emanate automatically from the flute itself rather than from any effort on Tamino's part to play it. The music is also instrumental in that it serves as a medium or tool, in this case of enchantment as well as of control. It enraptures and tames not only the wild animals that surround Tamino, but also Tamino himself. As the flute plays, he becomes so enchanted by its sound that he attempts to imitate it with the sound of his voice, and sings praises to the flute rather than to the gods or Panmina. Once again, as with the clarinet passage in the recitative, Tomino takes the cue for his vocal line from an instrument's music. This time, however, it is diegetic. The music seems to be controlling him. He seems to be the instrument of the flute. As long as the flute plays, in fact, Tomino remains grateful and reassured, but when he begins to sing again, his old anxieties creep in. Instead of cadencing in C major, as it did in measure 175, his vocal line turns towards C minor, in measures 188 to 92, as he wonders where Pamina is. When, toward the end of the piece, he calls to Pamina, Pamina, listen to me. The me could just as easily refer to the flute's playing as to his singing, for in the following measure, there is no vocal cry but an ascending run into the flute. Tamino's desire has become objectified through the music of the flute. The flute stands in for and expresses what he attempts to say with his own voice. When he sings, listen to me, he really means, listen to the magic flute. If Pamina is to hear Tamino, we are led to believe it must be through the sound of the magic flute. Indeed, as this section ends, instrument responds to instrument as Papagino's panpipes echo Tamino's flute. And with that, we're going to stop this part and finish it up in a second section. Thank you for listening. 
If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.